according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians this evening, Philippians chapter 4, continuing our study where we left off on Sunday morning. Philippians 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And so a lot to unpack out of that verse, the details that we can glean from it, and the application that can be made, the personal application for personal grace giving, also corporate application for local church grace giving, and uh, principles that are gleaned there as well. Before we get started this evening, remember God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth. Thankful, Father, for the blessings we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We, we ask for your faithfulness once again to be manifest as it always is. We thank you for the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit who uh, can open the eyes of our understanding, open the ears of our hearing. Father, we thank you that the Word of God is not an earthly exercise. It doesn't depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. It's your faithfulness, Father, in the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit combining spiritual with spiritual and uh, leading us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So Father, this night is yours. Use it to glorify your Son. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do want to take a few minutes, as we would like to do on Wednesday night, for question and answer time. And so there's a microphone ready to go. And um, I don't believe we have any email questions that have come in. The email's been really slow lately, so... uh, really a paucity of questions coming by email. So that means we have more time to take some here from uh, from the floor. If there's questions on your mind, anything that wasn't clear on Sunday or other puzzles that have come up in the last couple of days or something confusing you read on the radio, on the, in a book or heard on the radio or anything at all, from Genesis to Revelation, we'll take any question at all here tonight. Or not. Okay, yes. All right. Don't be shy. Okay. All right, this comes from last uh, Sunday in Philippians when you were teaching on uh, Kairos. Uh-huh. That no opportunity? Right. Okay, so we went to Mark 6.31, and so I want to wonder, I wondered why that one is eukaryo instead of the no opportunity one. What verse was that? Mark 631. Ah, okay, so um, it is the positive, it is the eukairos there, and it's because it's negated with the expression that they did not have. So they did not have a good opportunity. Does that make sense? And so it's the, it is the positive word for good opportunity. It's the positive word for an opportune time. Uh, you know, the, when it says that um, 
there were so many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat that they did not have an opportune time. So it is the positive verb, it's just negated with, with an adverb. Okay, so that's just two ways to achieve the same thing. You can have whatever the anti, yes. whatever that word is. A- yes, and we can do the same thing in English too. We could say, this is a terrible time for that, or we can say, this is not a good time for that. Got it, thank you. That uh-huh. totally makes sense, thanks. So we, Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that uh, detail in Mark 6, by the way, is unique to the Gospel of Mark. It's not contained in, in Matthew, Luke, or John. And it's one of those details that comes out in Mark the servant. Mark gives the servant emphasis in his Gospel record. So that's uh, kind of a neat detail that goes with that. All right, other questions tonight? Over to the recording desk, please. I know you've answered this one before. Uh, I just don't remember what it was. Uh, Job 38, 7. This is where uh, it was was being told, the morning stars sang out together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Mm -hmm. Who are the sons of God? Angels. They are angels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can't be people because they're observing the creation of the earth. And And humans aren't there yet. So uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, and then you have a six-day account that's given in Genesis, and then you know Adam is created on day six. There is a debate about whether Eve was also created on day six or if she came on a subsequent day, um, which I believe she did. In any event, um, what, uh, these aren't human beings watching the creation of the earth, and so they're they're clearly angels. And anytime B'nai HaElohim occurs in the in the Hebrew in the Old Testament it's always an angelic reference from Genesis 6 all through the rest of of the Old Testament and so uh, in the creation of the earth it's part of the rebuke of Job you know you weren't there what you you think you know better than God and yet you're not God you didn't create this place you wouldn't know how to create this place and where were you when I did all this glorious stuff you weren't there the angels were there the angels were there witnessing and, and celebrating and rejoicing. I think the term morning stars, that's another deep study. And um, here they're singing. And I think uh, music seems to be their connection in some kind of worship. And uh, part of that, uh, I think, comes into play with Satan and his role, too, before he fell uh, in leading the priestly worship and leading the worship there for the angels. So do we have basically two different types of angels here? Because we're talking about the morning stars and the sons of God. So. It's, it could be taken either way. It depends on how you read the poetry. Sometimes poetry is, is redundant. It, it says the same thing twice with just different terminology. Other times it's parallel, in which case th- these are two different kinds of angels or classifications of angels. And, uh, and I think that's probably the case. I think morning stars is a particular classification of angels. But then it says all of the sons of God uh, shouted for joy. And so, um, yeah, I would just take those as two different classifications of angels. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. But it's, by the way, it's a marvelous testimony to the fact that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all right? And if you notice what I did there, I put a gap, right? Some people don't like gap, but that's all right. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, all right? And that's a gap that's internal to verse 1 of Genesis 1-1. I haven't even gotten to the gap that's in between verse 1 and verse 2. 
all right, which is more controversy. People used to teach more frequently, and they don't teach as much anymore. Uh, but uh, I believe uh, then it says the earth was formless and void. Well, how did that happen? What happened in between verse 1 and verse 2 that caused the earth to be formless and void? Because it wasn't created formless and void. So something happened in between verse 1 and verse 2. So that's the traditional gap that we understand that in terms of ruin, reconstruction, and, and that model. But then there's a gap, an internal gap within verse 1 itself. Within the beginning God created the heavens. And I believe that once the heavens are created, He was able to populate with a heavenly host. Right? And so the angels were created and the heavenly host gathered around. Obviously they're in existence to watch the creation of the earth. And so uh, it's natural to put the creation of the heavenly host following the creation of the, of the heavens. And so that's the order of, uh, of things there in, in Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. So that's more than what you asked about, but this is the verse that really clues us into that. And I appreciate that. All right, Doug. Doug gets our next question there tonight. We touched on this a little bit this morning. Um, I had a uh, fellow who camps on this verse. Uh, could you turn to Matthew fifteen twenty four? Did you say 15 or 16? 15. 24. Oh, right. Where he says, this is I was the Syrophoenician sick. woman, and the only time Jesus ever took a vacation, and uh, ended up being a working vacation, because <laughs> he gets out there, and this woman needs uh, needs a miracle, and and so you were asking about this fellow that I talked with. Basically, in his mind, the Lord was sent only to for the lost sheep of Israel, and not us and uh, the Gentiles, and. Uh, but he changed his mind or, or something. It just maybe right. you could elaborate on this yeah, verse. Yeah, yeah. And the... yeah this is, uh, well, see, those are the kind of confusions that will happen if you aren't grounded in dispensations, if you aren't grounded in the, the plan of God from Alpha to Omega, difference between Israel and the church, law and grace, Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, it seems if, if you're solid on your dispensations, on your plan of God, then a lot of things get easier after that. But uh, So yes, in Jesus' primary ministry in his first advent, he was mainly sent, and it says here, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so that was his focus. That's who he preached to, that's who he ministered to, and so forth. But being sent to for speaking and teaching and miracles and all of that, that's completely unrelated to why he died on the cross. Okay, And so to try to take this verse and say, you know, that salvation is only available to the, to the Jews is pretty crazy. Because uh, he's the second Adam. He's come to re- re- redeem all the lost estate of the first Adam. Jew or Gentile, if you're human, you're in Adam and you need a Savior. And so clearly that's the purpose for the cross. But she came to him and she wanted a miracle and that's not consistent with his ministry. It was targeted towards the Jewish people. So he was right to tell her that. And then when she says, well, can't even a Gentile dog get a table scrap? You know, uh, When she went with that metaphor... He was thrilled. I mean, it just it impacted him. He saw the great faith, and he said, "Wow, this is great." And he uh, he had capacity to appreciate her doctrine and what the point she was making. And so, yeah, he he healed the the, the child right there on the spot. So it's it's a, it's a neat neat chapter, and I like preaching that. But um, it has no bearing with who he died for on the cross or any kind of a thing limited, you know, keeping Gentile dogs away from from salvation. That's just a I don't know who was telling you that, but that's a crazy crazy way to take that. I'll tell you later. All right. Thank you. Excellent. 
Excellent, excellent. All right. Good questions tonight. Appreciate those. Anything else? Going once, going twice. I'm a terrible auctioneer. I would not do well in that. All right. Well, thank you, Christopher. Appreciate that. If uh, you change your mind later on and decide you do want to ask something, just get me after church. Also, this is a good time to check your phone and make sure if you have a very loud ringtone. Mine went off during prayer meeting and I was humiliated. The song, by the way, is uh, called Never Give Up, Never Give In. And it's uh, Ernie Haas and Signature Sound Quartet. And it's uh, very loud <laughs> as uh, the opening guitar riff gets it going. So anyway, let's go to Philippians chapter 4 and pick up what we're looking at here. Remember, uh, we basically divided this chapter into three parts, and uh, we're now in uh, the middle portion. And uh, this is like our second or third class in this middle portion, verses 10 through 19. Uh, it's a final item that Paul is mentioning prior to closing the epistle. And, and really, once he gets through verse 9, he's ready to end the epistle. Verse 9 almost even looks like a benediction in some ways uh, about the God of peace being with you. But he stops and he has one more item to, to get into before he closes the epistle. And that's this item here. It's an appreciation for grace. It's a recognition that Philippi had sent him some funds. He, uh, Epaphroditus had traveled to his location with, with uh, cash, for, with money for his support. And so one final item Paul mentions prior to closing this epistle is the grace financial provision that he appreciated from the Philippian saints. And Epaphroditus had been their servant carrying the funds. In fact, not only did he bring the, the funds, but then he stayed there. He remained in Paul's uh, uh, area and uh, ministered to him in, uh, in a remarkable way. And something that we consider when we explore different spiritual gifts and different ministries, particularly the gift of server minister and how that ministry is designed to, uh, to bless um, an individual or a ministry or a lampstand as uh, the case may be. So we'll, we'll say some more about that as we get further down in this paragraph related to Epaphroditus. And so we've simply entitled the paragraph Grace Giving Gratitude. I like to use alliteration every chance I get, so I overdid it on this one. But Grace Giving Gratitude, that Paul was very grateful for the, the grace giving that the Philippians had, had given. In fact, they were not new to this. Let me just grab a few of these verses here. Uh, in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Finally, now at last. Because it's been a while. And uh, in the past, they were his biggest supporters. But then they had to stop. And however long that period was, it is now over. As soon as Epaphroditus arrived with the, the money in hand, Paul was thrilled. Not for the money's sake, but for the fact that, that Philippi was back in the uh, missionary supporting business, as it were. He said, yeah, indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And we've got to deal with that because that opportunity makes all the difference with what we're accountable for before the Lord. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And the whole key to this paragraph is contentment, not complacency, which we saw this morning. Complacency is a counterfeit for contentment. Complacency is one of the devil's techniques that he tries to get us complacent and we substitute that for contentment and that's not divine contentment. It's actually a, a, a laziness. We grow complacent. We think we've 
done enough, and uh, that's not contentment. So we'll uh, we'll discuss that also. Um, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in a prosperity. And, and all of these circumstances require knowledge. They require full knowledge. They require Bible study so that we're living our lives biblically in the, in the will of God. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. And you say, well, what's the secret about being rich? You know, just uh, make a lot of money and spend it and have fun. And that seems pretty easy. Well, no, we'll talk about that. The, the prosperity test is worse than the adversity test as far as the difficulty for um, human beings to deal with. Typically speaking, pride takes over and uh, in the prosperity test we've lost before we even realize it. And so this then becomes the parameter for I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. I've seen that verse so abused and turned into something it's not uh, you know, the I can do all things. Don't think that, you know, that gives you magic powers or superpowers or you can, you can do anything. It doesn't say you can do anything. In the context of doing all things, it's in the context of getting along in humble means or getting along in prosperity. It, it centers in the spectrum of, of human life and the circumstances God places us in. We'll discuss that as well. Some of the background for this paragraph, though, comes up starting in verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. And this, uh, this gets real you know, personal for a local church, especially this time of year when we're about to have our annual business meeting and we're going to talk about money and the, what, the, uh, what the giving was like in 2018 and what the budget's looking like in 2019. And these are the kind of things you deal with as a church when... Uh, you know, when you start to observe that your supporters are decreasing, right? And say, well, we used to have more supporters, we have fewer supporters, and now what do we do? And what happens when you get fewer supporters and fewer supporters, and now you've got one left, one and only one? And that's what it says here. Yeah, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. And so there it is. You got one church supporting you, and then they stop. <laughs> okay? So, hmm, all right, when's this going to happen? Then, you know, you, this is how you, you walk by faith. And if he has to be a tent maker for a season, he's a tent maker for a season. And, and those things happen. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And uh, we'll, we'll look at that some more. We understand there were some legal issues there and there was some conflict. And uh, Jason, who hosted them in his home, he had to put up money promising that, that Paul was going to leave town and not come back. And, uh, and so while the, the Thessalonian officials are keeping Jason's money as a, like a, a bail money or a bond posting, um, well, obviously that's money that can't go to support the Apostle Paul. It can't go to missionary work. It can't go to other things. And uh, so that becomes a problem too. The real impact on this when we get down far enough is going to be down in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. That the real issue is, is not the money. It's the spiritual work that happens and the, and the spiritual growth, the profit that happens. And uh, in the heavenly accounting system, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more happy to give than to receive, as we saw this morning. And uh, the happiness that comes is one thing, but then the eternal profit comes because you're laying up treasure in heaven. And that's eternal profit. That's rewardable of the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, we'll talk about that there as well. Verse 18, I have received everything in full 
and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And do you see what he calls it there in verse 18? A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And so he, he places these things in priestly terms. And what a joy it is for me that we're getting Philippians at the same time that we're getting Hebrews on Sunday morning that uh, the Hebrews class at the 11 o'clock hour Sunday morning is just going hand in hand here with this material because we're learning about the Melchizedek priesthood and the temple offerings and the sweet smelling savor and what does it mean when your incense goes up from the altar of incense and it goes through the veil? Well, he's talking about money, grace giving. And in, in physical terms, you know, coins or whatever, you know, the gold and currency they had back in those days, you know, coins are traveling from, uh, from place to place. And, uh, but in the spiritual realm, there's incense going up before the Father's throne and He's well pleased with the, uh, the fragrant aroma. And that's uh, what it comes right down there. All right. So in the grace-giving gratitude, we start over with point one. We'd like to start every outline fresh with every new paragraph development. And we start with mega rejoicing. Mega rejoicing in the Lord that now at last their concern has revived. And it is mega rejoicing. Of all the times, there's 14 times that Cairo or Kara occurs in this epistle. This is the final one. It's the final one and it's the biggest one. Because of all the rejoicing throughout the book of Philippians, this is the one that is modified with the adverb megalos. He says, in curio megalos. It is great rejoicing, mega rejoicing. And uh, even if you don't read Greek, uh, you know, we, we have mega everything in our culture these days, it seems like. You know, stores will have a mega sale or, you know, your computer's got megabytes and all kinds of stuff, right? In fact, we're so prideful these days, mega seems small. We need giga now to be bigger than mega. We, there's probably things even bigger than giga when it comes right down to it. Petabytes or something like that. In any event, the Greek word mega means large, it means huge, and this is what his rejoicing is. His rejoicing is huge, that uh, they have at last, finally, revived concern for him. And so I uh, won't take the time tonight, but we have in the process of this book study, we've seen rejoicing in chapter 1, in chapter 2, we've seen rejoicing in chapter 3, we've seen rejoicing in chapter 4. And um, you know, that's every chapter of this book. You know, to, he'd have to add a fifth or sixth chapter to pack more rejoicing in there. There's a lot of rejoicing in this book. And so this final reference is the mega rejoicing. He says, now at last, now at last. And, and this, is, uh, this is sweet because this, this expresses a thrill. This is the idea of a human being, a mortal creature like you and me. We're finite temporal creatures. And, and what do we do? We, we proceed through that time dimension one day at a time, always forward. Uh, that's, that's, that's the trap we're in called time. And it's always a linear forward-moving dimension. And it's, uh, you know, it's just moving. And sometimes it seems to move as slow as molasses. And sometimes it, it seems to move faster. But it just moves and moves and moves. And when we're waiting for something, especially something that might not ever come, that's the hardest thing at all. Because you're, you're waiting for it, you're waiting for it, and and we don't know the future. We don't know. I mean, he he was hoping that that the Philippians would return to a place where they could support him some more, but he didn't know if that day would ever come. And uh, you know, we have things like that as well with our training ministry, with our Sunday night schedule, with a lot of things. And we uh, we ho- hope that certain things are going to happen, 
someday, maybe. And if they do, they do. And if they don't, they don't. And God's in charge. But we just wait and we wait. And so when it finally comes, we can say, yes, at last, finally. Finally, see. And that's the nature of, uh, I think, just finite creatures um, functioning in a plan designed by an infinite being. You know, since it's an infinite, eternal being that designed this plan, uh, us finite creatures that are a part of that plan, uh, sometimes it's uh, it's it's an interesting to watch that plan unfold. Okay, different things there. Kind of like when um, <laughs> we had boy, girl, boy. We had three children, and our daughter was just praying for a sister because she didn't like being stuck between these two boys. You know. When, can, can we have a girl? Can I have a sister? How's this going to work? And then uh, so we said, hey, this is a great chance to learn about prayer. Let's pray and we'll ask God. And so we're praying and we're praying and thought it was a good object lesson for our children to learn how to pray. Uh, but then you have to learn how to wait because, you know, after a while I was like, well, how long does this take? You know, and, and finally when she was about ready to despair of ever praying again uh, is when we found out that yes, uh, Mom's pregnant. There's going to be a sibling, and and uh, we hope it's a girl, <laughs> you know, because now we're going to learn more waiting. We're going to wait for you know nine months, and we're going to find out if it's a girl. And it was thankfully, but prayer uh, prayer works. And you uh, and then you get to spend the next twenty years after that reminding them you prayed for this sister. Remember that you prayed for this sister. That becomes uh, a different story. All right. So now at last, okay. Perhaps the biggest thing that this at last does for us, though, it helps us to pinpoint that the uh, traditional dating of this epistle and the traditional source of this epistle, more often than not, that everyone wants to to take all the uh, prison epistles, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and wants to make Rome the origin. That the imprisonment that he had in, in Acts 28, at the end of the book of Acts, that time that he was in Rome there, that that is the time frame for sending Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. And that wouldn't really, be, I think, be a problem for Ephesians, wouldn't really be a problem for Colossians, but it, it's very problematic for Philippians, and, and this verse is, is a big part of that problem. The idea that now at last, that uh, if it's taken Philippi that long to give Paul some financial support, that does not correlate well with the huge financial support they sent off to the Jerusalem church. See, and actually put Paul in charge of. <laughs> so, you know, imagine trying to tell a missionary, yeah, we'd love to support you. We can't support you. We're just strapped right now. We can't afford to support you. But would you mind carrying this big gift to Jerusalem for us? That would really help. And uh, you realize how awkward that is and how really inconsistent that is and that, that, that creates a conundrum for uh, people that try to put these things together in Pauline chronologies. So there's other things to, to be done with this here, but I think it points to Acts chapter 20 and the Ephesian ministry there in the third missionary journey during the three years that he spent in Ephesus that there were multiple imprisonments over those three years, that he was in and out of jail during that time. And, uh, and there's other references to those hardships uh, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians. He talks about the multiple imprisonments. He talks about the multiple hardships that he encountered in Asia while he was in Ephesus on that third missionary journey. So um, if you do those kind of studies, this, uh, this verse is going to be big in that regard. 
When he says, now at last you've revived your concern for me, it's actually thinking. It's a phroneo verb. That's a verb of thinking. Concern is not an emotional thing. It's a thinking thing. That if you have a true biblical concern for a brother or for a sister, that means that you're oriented to the truth of the Word of God and that you're praying to the Father on their behalf. You're becoming a, 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 an intercessor on behalf of the one that you are concerned for. And you are thinking of them. You are making mention of them in your prayers. You are reminding God of your loved ones as you are concerned about them and mentioning them in prayer. So it is a thinking word for now that we've also had, by the way, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Every chapter of this book features thinking, features phroneo. Do you think that's an accident? That you have thinking in every chapter and you have rejoicing in every chapter? Okay? Should be uh, not a coincidence at all. All right. And then uh, this issue on reviving, nursing back to health. Or if it's in a botanical usage, it's... uh, a plant maybe that hasn't sprouted in ages and now it's going to re-sprout in, uh, in the aspect there. So when he says you've revived your concern for me, from his perspective it seemed like they weren't concerned at all. That there was no concern and then it revived. It just sparked back up out of nowhere. That the concern was zero and now the concern is, is, is whatever number it is, is back again. Okay, but then he stops and he says, indeed, I love that indeed, you were concerned. You always were concerned. You never stopped being concerned, but you just lacked the opportunity. And so when it seemed to me like you didn't care and you weren't concerned, and, and uh, the reality was they were concerned. They never stopped being concerned. They just lacked the opportunity, which gives us a huge principle. The huge principle, whether the opportunity is there or not, it's the readiness that's rewardable. The readiness is what's rewardable. And uh, the principle of application there that comes out of Second Corinthians chapter 8. All right, so all of that is what we've covered up till now, and uh, we're ready to kind of get the next detail out of this in verses 11 and 12. He says, "Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am." And so uh, what is the, the, the lack, the need, the deficiency? And does that control us? Does that drive how we think? Does that drive how we speak? Does that impel us to say certain things or think certain ways or do certain things? Is, uh, is the necessity a controlling factor? Or do we recognize it for what it is? It's a testing circumstance. And obeying God is the controlling factor. That I want uh, my obedience to the plan of God to drive what I say and how I say it, what I do and why I do it. Everything that that happens there. All right. So point two in the outline, if you're keeping notes and tracking this, Paul frames the personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. Paul frames the personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. And so when I visualize this, or I like to draw it out, I just just put a spectrum, I draw an arc across my paper and I say, here's a spectrum, right? And... um, I told you last week I was going to do more of these. Here we go. So financial spectrum. When I draw a spectrum, I like to make a big smiley face. <laughs> All right. 
Because regardless of where we are on the spectrum, we can be happy, okay? So draw it like a smiley face and that reminds you. All right, so we got extremes, okay? And this particular diagram happens to be my financial spectrum for tonight, for this class tonight in Philippians chapter 4. But guess what else we can do? We can draw that same exact picture for physical health, right? And it also looks like a smiley face. <laughs> it's just the physical health spectrum, okay? And wherever you are on that spectrum, so over here you are very, this is the negative polarity, here's the positive polarity. All right, and so wherever you are, let's say you're down here at the very, I mean, you couldn't be any poorer than that. You're poorer than a church mouse. I mean, you are just destitute, absolutely destitute. Or you're the richest guy in the world, okay? And chances are most of us are, you know, somewhere in the middle, okay? We're never as rough as we think we're having it. We're never as great as we think we're having it. Wherever we are on the spectrum, okay, the spectrum isn't the point. The spectrum is just a venue. It is a testing circumstance. And so God puts you on that spectrum at various places, and are you going to walk by faith? Are you going to walk by faith? And is there a point where you start getting a little too uh, well-to-do and now you stop walking by faith? Or is there a point where, man, now you're really struggling and, and there too you stop walking by faith? You get mad at God or you blame God or you just lose heart or you just, you know, where is there? And God knows where to keep you. So you're not too rich, you're not too poor. You're exactly where He needs you to be. But then He may move you from one end of the spectrum to the other. And you may spend some time up here or down here or different places. And the, 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 the point is He's putting you in these conditions to test you as to your faith. Do you stay faithful? Do you continue to serve Him? Do you keep giving Him all the glory? And, and how does your placement on this spectrum affect your decision making, your thinking, your speaking, the things you do? Does it affect it at all? Same thing too, by the way, I'll just get ahead of myself. Health, physical health. Again, it's a spectrum. And wherever God chooses to place you, you know, if you're the most crippled invalid in the world or um, you're the most physically fit guy in the world or somewhere in between, where are you on that spectrum and, and are you going to stay faithful in, uh, in, these, in all these circumstances? Okay? And I think um, sometimes people get confused or I get confused and, and we say it wrong or we're not as, as tactful when we say it. Um, the, the point of giving you a health test is not to take it away. The point of giving you a financial test is not to take it away. You know, so you get a you get a diagnosis and you go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, the doctor just told me I have whatever. Okay? And so obviously it's the will of God to take that away. <laughs> you know, the answer to this test is to take away my test. That's not the answer to the test. All right. There's a purpose for why he sent it. And the, the time, the duration of enduring that test is going to feature your faith in a lot of different ways. And this is true for health, for finances, for any other spectrum you care to, uh, to draw in that, uh, in that way. So this is what Paul's doing here. He's framing the personal financial spectrum as a context for contentment. Are we going to be content in every circumstance? Because what happens is, is the world, the flesh, and the devil step in there and then it starts... Um, stirring up our pride, starts stirring up our sin nature, and starts uh, working on us so that we're not content. 
We get, we get very uh, non-content with how much money or how little money or how much health or how little health or um, uh, approbation, how much respect we get in the workplace or other things that we start craving and we think that we should have more than we have. And I, I'm not content with this little amount that I think I should have more. And that's the, uh, the testing venue. It's a context for contentment. Neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible. You realize that? Neither extreme on the spectrum. So when he talks about I know how to get along with humble means, that's on the one end, and I know how to live in prosperity, that's on the other end. And everywhere in between is included in this, in this verse, in, in this example. I know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. So what does that leave out? When he says any and every circumstance, there's nothing left out. It's the totality of that entire spectrum. We'll talk about this too because there's examples. Jesus used this. He talked about the widow and he talked about this woman who gave the two mites and uh, and she gave more than all the rich people put together. See, and we'll look at that passage tonight. Neither extreme on the spectrum makes contentment impossible when a believer walks by faith, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. That might sound familiar because I ripped off a different Bible verse for that. Ever learning, not never learning, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Because when he talks about contentment, look what he does here. He says in verse 11, I have learned to be content. You realize that? It takes instruction. It takes humility before the Word of God. You've got to grow in this. This doesn't come automatically. You don't just get saved and immediately God pours into you a mystical divine contentment that you're going to have for the rest of your life. It doesn't happen that way. When you're born, you're a newborn. You're an infant. You don't know anything. How much does an infant know? Okay? You know, babies are stupid. Okay? They just, well, not stupid. They're just ignorant. They can learn and they need to learn. All right. And so, when you're a spiritual baby, when you were just saved this morning, how much doctrine do you have? None. You know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. I mean, you know you're saved. You know that you know the Lord. And you got the rest of your Christian walk to, to learn a little here and a little there, line upon line, precept upon precept. And if you're humble, you'll keep growing, keep growing, and you're never going to stop. Because the minute you stop, you've just plunged into a, into a cycle of arrogance and uh, your testing is about to, about to reflect that. So, uh, ever learning, ever learning and coming to the knowledge of the truth. Ever learning, not never learning. That's the other issue there in, in Timothy where these weak women are weighed down by these things and they're, they're ever learning but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. So, uh, I, not that I speak from want for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. This contentment is possible. Contentment. This idea of contentment. All right, subpoint A. Jesus contrasted need, want, deficiency. When we talk about need, not that I speak from want, the, the want itself is undeniable. That if, if you don't have it, it's, it's a deficiency. If it's, if it's there, now it may not be a need, 
And we talk, you know, we, we like to differentiate between needs and wants, particularly with our children and others that want to confuse the issues. <laughs> they want to, oh, but mom, I need, I need. Wait a minute. Okay. There's needs and then there's wants. But the idea of a lack or a deficiency, a need, a want, or a deficiency, the idea is, is that um, there is a deficiency. There is, uh, uh, and, and you're experiencing it. And it might be a financial deficiency or a, a health deficiency. It might be a relationship deficiency. It might be a, a love deficiency or whatever it is. That uh, that honestly, uh, you know, you could use some more. <laughs> and uh, and and he's going to provide. My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply. But for this time and for this season and for his good reasons, uh, he has not yet provided that. Okay. Now, why the delay and why so long and why why not now? You know, that's his business. That's his good wisdom. Remember, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk with him. And uh, this is part of his faithfulness here as well. Anyway, Jesus uses the same vocabulary in uh, Mark 12 and Luke 21. Uh, it's the same terminology that we have here in verse 11 when he says, not that I speak from want, uh, deficiency. And he's going to contrast it with abundance. So there's abundance and then there's lack or deficiency. And he does this with the widow's might, uh, demonstrating that neither extreme on the personal financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. Neither extreme on the personal financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. So we don't have to read them both because they're largely identical there. But let's look at Mark 12. I think Mark 12 is, uh, has some more of the vivid terminology that a servant-minded author would include. Mark 12, 44. The paragraph begins in verse 41. It actually follows a message on pride, and so that's um, important as he is discussing the scribes and Pharisees and why they, they like to have all the respectful greetings in the marketplaces and all the, the issues there. So anyway, he follows up a, a lesson on pride and he points out this widow. In uh, verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And, and you could see that. You're, you're watching them walk in. And here they are. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to ascent in the, the lepta coin, the smallest coin in the, in the Roman world. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, truly I say to you, this widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Right? I think if he was a Texan, he would have said he put in more than all, all y'all. Right? All y'all put together. This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. All those rich people showing up with these great sums. And she put in these two coins. And here's the, the distinction here in verse 44. For they all put in out of their surplus. And this is what we talk about. We talk about net and, and gross. We talk about um, first fruits versus leftovers. We talk about other mindsets in our grace giving. And, and the, the, the principle that's clear 
than the personal application that different believers come to in their own convictions and in their own faith before the Lord. All right? But they put in out of their surplus, but she out of her lack, out of her deficiency, out of her need, out of her poverty. And this is the vocabulary from Philippians 4.11, and the Lord's using it here in uh, Mark 12.44. She out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. Her very livelihood was uh, these two small copper coins that she gave. And so the demonstration here being that neither extreme, uh, that even on the lowest end, grace giving is still possible when you're at the lowest end. Because whatever you have is grace. God has given. And are you responding to grace? Do you have capacity to identify God's grace? And having received God's grace, do you have the capacity to extend God's grace? And uh, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, the, the actual absolute dollar value of, of the gift is irrelevant. Because you can give $1,000 to this ministry with a poor attitude, or you can give 10 bucks to this ministry with a great attitude, and, and we know which one's the greater gift. We know what God will do with, with that which is done in love, that which is done by grace will be rewarded every time. And so uh, this is a pretty straightforward explanation related to this. And folks that say, well, you know, um, I think they like to run back to that as the Lord gives opportunity and say, well, I just don't have opportunity right now because I can't afford it. Say, well, wait a minute, don't confuse opportunity with grace and recognize that even the the widow and the two mites has the opportunity related to personal grace giving. All right. And so uh, we have that. And it becomes possible, even uh, in, the, in the most humblest of means, even uh, you know, little children that are in Sunday school and, they, and, and parents that are teaching them about their allowance and they're, they're doing their chores around the house or whatever they do to get an allowance. And then uh, you know, they get their, their allowance and, and whatever it is. You know, these days is probably insane. But you know, whatever it is, I remember, you know, no, I don't remember. Whatever I used to make as a kid was uh, low enough that I got a job when I was 10. <laughs> All right. But I wanted to work. I wanted to make money. But whatever you get. So your child gets, uh, you know, he gets a uh, dollar a week or $10 a week or whatever you get. I don't know, whatever kid gets for allowance these days. The principle is, however small it is, he can still give a portion of that. He can give, not tithing, but it's still it's a fraction. It's a portion that uh, that freely he received, freely he gives. And so, look, I made five bucks this week. I made 10 bucks this week. I want part of that. I want to honor the Lord with the first fruits. And, and if you have that as a first fruits priority, then that comes first. Okay? And uh, whether you want it to come first after taxes or before taxes, it's between you and the Lord. But, uh, you know, you got to pay Uncle Sam, right? Well, yeah, but render unto Caesar what is Caesar, render unto God what is God's. And, uh, and who comes first? God or Caesar? All right. And so uh, there's that. This is the illustration our Lord used. And uh, this becomes the, uh, the principle there. Also Paul. Paul contrasted the, uh, this term for need, want, deficiency. Paul contrasted this term with abundance. And again, it's abundance. And so there's abundance and then there's lack. And they're, they're contrasted as a spectrum. Okay, So Paul also contrasted the need-want deficiency spectrum with abundance in his ex- exhortation regarding Macedonian grace. 
Now this is slightly different, okay? And and I think it's I think we're wrong if we don't notice the differences that uh, personal giving is personal and and corporate giving is is public. It is is full awareness, right? And so uh, when we go to 2 Corinthians 8, we'll see this illustration next. Because there's little and then there's much. But even when there's little, there is still the uh, capacity. All right. So Paul demonstrates that neither extreme on the local church financial spectrum makes grace giving impossible. And that's true as well. All right. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, Brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That's Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. Okay? And, uh, and so Corinth is going to learn. Local churches can learn from other local churches as they see how the Lord's using them and how fruit is born and different things are done. And they can cooperate with other churches too. So in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. What a verse. So there's abundance of joy, there's lack of, uh, of money, and yet they came together uh, in a wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. They gave of their own accord. And so grace giving has got to be volitional. It's got to be of your own accord. It can't be grudgingly or under compulsion. God loves the cheerful giver. And uh, it's, it's uh, the opportunity is, uh, is what it is, but the ability and, and uh, the provision, that all comes from God. That all comes from God. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. They viewed it as their grace blessing to give. They got to show grace and they were begging for it. Let us show grace. Let us show grace. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And that's an excellent pattern as well. If you have a season where your giving can't be financial, then then uh, you have a season where your giving can be personal. Your giving can be yourself. You can give uh, in in service and time and and other other non financial giving expressions. And uh, because you know you, you may have a season where the finances aren't there, so you give of yourself, as uh, the Philippians demonstrated here. They first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Now, um, when you get down to verse, we talked about readiness and willingness, down to verse 12, if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And that's why the, uh, it's according to what you have, if, if you're a widow with two mites, then, then you're a widow with two mites. It says according to what you have, not what you don't have. God's not judging, or Jesus doesn't you know, rebuke that widow and say, why couldn't she uh, you know, outdo the, in, in, in raw dollars, she couldn't. But in her heart, she did. All right? The readiness is acceptable. The sweet smelling savor. Uh, according to what you have, not what you don't have. For this is not for the uh, ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. Now here's the key, because it goes both ways. At the present time, at the now opportunity. 
at the now opportunity, your abundance is for their need. See how that works? So you have brothers in Christ, you have churches, you have things. For example, Jerusalem was going through a famine, Jerusalem was struggling. <coughs> so uh, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, they got together and they, they had an abundance. And they said, look, we have the abundance. Jerusalem has the deficiency. And this uh, is how it's designed. Your abundance for their need. So that their abundance may become a supply for your need. That there may be equality. What a buzzword in our day and age, huh? And yet here's the biblical viewpoint on it. As we serve one another in the body of Christ. And so, yeah, the present opportunity now might be going this direction, but who's to say what the future opportunity then is going to turn into a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, as far as it goes. And and it may not return financially. It might be uh, the return could come in another way. The return could come in, in spiritual ways. The return could come in, in um, any number of things. It might come in terms of ministers. It might come in terms of evangelists or pastors or other spiritual ministers that are going to come and they're going to bear a fruit in, uh, in a location. It could be any number of ways. And so that's the contrast there. When you get down to I think the rest of this chapter here is, uh, we can skip through that. When we get down to uh, chapter 9, it continues on, and he's inviting the Corinthians now to join in these endeavors and uh, about to see if their readiness is uh, going to match the Macedonian readiness. And because uh, he's been talking about it, been bragging about them, you know, and that, that gets embarrassing if, uh, you know, if you've been telling stories and then they don't follow through. <laughs> so. He says in verse 2 of chapter 9, I know of your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. When he finally had that reunion with Titus, and he found out Titus was still alive, and then he found out that Corinth was positive to doctrine, and then he found out that they were uh, uh, they had a, a plan to put this gift together, and uh, and and Paul is just you know overwhelmed. He's like, wow. Because he knew what the Macedonians had been doing, and then he learned that the Achaeans actually beat them to it. They started earlier. They had they, they actually started their their process earlier, but now he's concerned that maybe they let it drift and they, they didn't follow through. And so uh, he says, "Okay, I know about your readiness. I've been boasting about you. So I've sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared." Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, uh, will be put to shame by this confidence. Okay, imagine that's that's not a good thing. And there's and there's, don't get me wrong, there's the personal embarrassment that's involved, but beyond that is just the 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 disappointment in the ministry with respect to the the glory of Jesus Christ and the the anticipation that uh, that they were serving the Lord in this way. So he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. And the whole point to this, the reason why he's so fastidious about spelling these things out ahead of time is so that everything's clear. Everything's open. Everything is for the glory of Jesus. There's no hard feelings. And there's certainly no wrong motivations. He says, we don't want anything so that nothing would be uh, affected by covetousness. That's the worst thing in the world. Don't want anything by covetousness. 
You know, we if we have a guest speaker, if there's a missionary report, or we know somebody's coming in, we, we try to handle that all ahead of time because of this chapter. We say, hey, look, so-and-so's coming, they're going to be here next Sunday, let's make sure we have this, and it's, it's there it is. And, and it's going to be given in grace, it's going to be given uh, objectively, it's going to be given uh, according to biblical principles. We're not, uh, we're not trying to tug on heartstrings and get people all sad or guilty or emotional or whatever. Um, and so that they, they end up giving money they don't want to give or feeling bad about. No, we want everything to be in grace and love and, and done up front. And that's uh, why it's expressed there. This is also the chapter where it talks about sowing sparingly and sowing bountifully. Uh, verse 7 says, each one must do as he has purposed in his heart. It comes from your own volition, the core of your being, what do you want to give? None of us, in the church age, we don't have a tithe. In the church age, we're not under Mosaic law. We don't have any kind of a Levitical priesthood that's auditing our tax returns and saying, well, this was your, this was your gross income, and so this is the 10% that has to go to the temple, and this is the 10% that has to go to, and they had different tithes um, for different things. We, we don't have a have to in the church age. There is no have to. 10% or 90% or anything in between. There's, it's just want to. What do you want to give? It's as you purposed in your heart. What is your capacity to express grace? Because God loves a cheerful giver. And this is the, uh, the principle here. Now the, when it comes down to verse 12, let's take a look at this. I'm in chapter 9 still looking at it, 11 and 12. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality. You never get hurt by God by being gracious. God always rewards grace. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, that's almost a side effect. (laughs) Not only is it doing that, what a great way to express this. You know, because how many of us, we put the money up front and say, that's the main point. And Paul says, no, that's not the main point. That's kind of the side effect. You know? <laughs> You're watching a commercial and they're, they're pushing this drug and you think, wow, I might need that. And then at the end of the commercial, the lawyers get on there with all the fine print and they say, you know, uh, complications from this drug might include blah, 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 blah. And then you think, I don't want that drug. What's that? You know, that's terrible. Because you're reading the side effects. You're reading the stuff that comes with it. See? Well, Paul says not only is this ministry fully supplying the needs of the saints. That's not the point. That's not the main purpose of the drug. It's kind of a side effect. He says the really exciting thing is, is that it's uh, also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. That there is a, there's a fruit being born and it's not just Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, but it's also Athens and Corinth and Sancria, the Achaean churches, and they're all coming together, they're all supporting this thing. And so when it gets to Jerusalem and the believers there are provided for, how many Thanksgiving uh, offerings are going to be? How much glory does Jesus Christ get? Glory all over the world, from Macedonia to Achaia to to, uh, Judea. All right. And so it's overflowing through many Thanksgivings to God. So Jesus talks about this spectrum. Paul talks about this spectrum. Um, We're going to come back on Sunday and talk about contentment. Contentment does not alter the reality of suffering need. The need is still the need. The suffering is still the suffering. 
I mean, if you lack, you lack. And, and just being content about it doesn't change what it is. It's still a lack. What it does, though, it, it, allow, it provides so that your thinking, your speaking, and your acting, they, don't, they aren't driven by that lack. They're not driven by the need or the want or the deficiency. When he says, not that I speak from want, that's what he's talking about. Yes, the want is still there, but he's not speaking from want. He's not speaking from the, you know, driven by that want. If you're speaking from want, that means it, it's, it's shaping how you think, it's shaping how you speak, it, it colors what you say and why you say it. You don't want, you don't want that to, to drive anything. You want to be speaking from the heart as molded by the Word of God. See, regardless of your circumstances. So contentment doesn't alter the need, but it does allow for thinking, speaking, and acting to not be driven by that need, that want, that deficiency. And so we learn to be content, and doctrine will teach us that. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 will also address this. So um, I'm out of time, but we'll come back. We'll talk about um, autarkes and autarkeia, arkeo. We'll talk about uh, what this satisfaction is, what is sufficient. The Bible says a lot about sufficiency, and, uh, and, and we, we are content. If He gives it to us, marvelous, that's His grace, and if He withholds it, we don't get jealous, we don't uh, blame Him, we don't have the sour grapes that, uh, that uh, you know, we deserve it, and why does this other person have it? And No. He gives, He takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He knows what He's doing. And uh, we, should, uh, we should celebrate for that. Father, I thank You for Your truth, I thank You for tonight's message, I thank You for this chapter. And there's so much detail in this chapter, but I appreciate the way that we can slow down and look at the details and consider everything that's being said. Father, show us what it means to speak from, uh, from, from a circumstance, to speak from want, to speak from anger, to speak from impatience, or any human weakness. Are we speaking from that? Or are we, are we speaking from the heart that's transformed by the Word of God? And that's what it really should be, Father. And I thank you that we're learning these lessons. We're learning them here. We're learning them in Proverbs. You're teaching us these lessons on a redundant basis, Father, across the whole spectrum of, of uh, classes here, Father, from Hebrews to Proverbs to, to Philippians. I love the way, Father, you take the Word of God and, you, and Scripture agrees with Scripture. And these, these concepts relate in, uh, in very marvelous ways. So thank you for students that are diligent to sh- present themselves approved to you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, bless these studies in every way, Father. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.